I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimus. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. As a reminder, Thomas will be lending his skills to perform a virtual home energy audit for a lucky listener in honor of our one-year anniversary as a podcast. So if you've ever wanted to know how to make your home more climate-friendly, and I'm sure listeners of this podcast do, this is your chance. Just uh, head over to our website, submit a comment with your first name, and tell us you want to be entered. And we'll be drawing uh, the lucky winner on September 19th. And while you're on the website, consider becoming a supporting member of the podcast by signing up as a monthly donor for 5 10 or even $20 a month. You know, your contributions are literally what keep this podcast going. So if you haven't donated before, but value, you know, what you're hearing from us each week, consider signing up as a, as a monthly donor. And remember, you know, as Todd says, no donation is too small or too big. And as a final announcement, we decided to take a week off from the podcast. So uh, next week, there will not be a new episode, but we'll be back on September 20th. So hang in there. Don't panic. We're not going away. Although pulling money out of fossil fuels, often called divestment, is critical to solving climate change, it's also essential that we have enough money flowing in the opposite direction into climate solutions. And so this week, we have an expert from climate finance who's going to discuss the intersection of money and climate change. We'll be talking about both the uh, financial challenges to decarbonizing as well as what's what's needed to address those challenges. And for those of you who, you know, typically fall asleep when you hear the word finance, I promise that uh, this week's interview is is an engaging one. But before we go there, Thomas, what have you got for us this week uh, for a reason for hope? Well, Jason, a new UK offshore wind farm has just claimed the uh, title for the largest offshore wind farm in the world. The project, the Hornsey 2 project, is located about 50 miles off the coast of Yorkshire in the UK and will produce enough power to run approximately 1.3 million homes. So it's a 1.3 gigawatt project and the turbines used there are eight megawatt machines. And to put that into perspective, it's about four times the rated capacity of a typical machine you see in land-based applications in the in the US. So this is a massive step forward. Yeah, I was excited to to read the headline. I mean, I know, you know, we've both built our share of wind farms and it's it's crazy to see how big they've gotten, especially these offshore units. The the scale of them is just well beyond what I ever imagined. So our guest today is Dimitri Gershenson. Dimitri is the CEO and co-founder of Enduring Planet, a financing partner for climate entrepreneurs. He's started the company building on over a decade of experience in climate tech, operations, and impact investing. Dimitri holds a bachelor's degree in natural resource management from Rutgers University. We won't hold that against him. And a master's in energy and resources management from UC Berkeley. Dimitri, welcome to Climate Optimist. Thanks, Jason. Glad to be here. So let's start you off with a question we do all our guests. When you think about efforts to address climate change, what makes you hopeful? So much makes me hopeful today. I think if you had asked me a year ago or two years ago, I may have been less hopeful. Uh, I have the 
incredible privilege to interact with hundreds of entrepreneurs building solutions to this crisis. And they are incredibly inspiring, determined, committed, values driven. I think the sort of pace of growth and expansion in the call it business side of, of climate is really encouraging. I think also the recent call it political wins, Inflation Reduction Act, the infrastructure bill in the US, a lot of the state efforts and similar efforts in Europe, Australia, I think globally, pretty good momentum because the world's on fire and it's pretty hard to be a leader and lie to your people to the degree that they have historically when it's kind of happening around you. And I have a kid now and she's four. And, you know, the other day she told me she also wanted to pack her lunch and go to work. And I said, Luna Bean, you're, you're four, (laughs) you know, (laughs) enjoy your life. Like you don't need to work yet. And she said, well, but you told me you love your job and you're working to stop climate change. And I want to do that too. And wow, man, I like, I'm like still emotional about it. (laughs) I can imagine. (laughs) I'm definitely with you on the momentum. And I mean, obviously I get the pleasure hosting, you know, this podcast of talking to people who are, you know, engaged in different pieces of the solution. And yeah, similarly, I, I think it does feel like there's this, you know, snowball effect that's taking place and and in addition to that that it's become inescapable for for leaders even leaders who may be you know dragging their feet and while it's rough to see you know wildfires and and floods and heat waves it does make it hard for a government to you know to avoid doing something about it so and 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 don't get me wrong right i am hopeful about an outcome that is better than the trajectory we were on Totally. I mean, I use the analogy with some people of like, if climate change is a house fire, you know, you want to keep the damage to a few rooms, right? Rather than letting the house burn down. And so there's going to be some collateral damage for sure. But what we do each day, every day helps limit that. That's right. That's right. And I hope that folks recognize that that collateral damage will largely be, will disproportionately impact underprivileged, marginalized communities. And so for those of us working in this space, if you're not thinking about the distribution of impact and therefore ideally the distribution of your focus, then I would advise you accordingly because saving Beverly Hills is not the thing. They'll be fine, you know? Right. They can buy bigger air conditioners. They can move away from the ocean, but low-income communities, communities of color, don't have the resources. And so there's a big environmental justice component to it as well. Totally. Well, let's get to what you do since we're talking about climate solutions. Um, how did you find your way to, you know, launching a, uh, launching Enduring Planet? It was not a direct path by any means. Uh, I can't even really take credit for starting the journey. I, was an undergrad and struggling to find a major and decided to just follow my brother in his footsteps. And he had studied ecology as an undergrad. And so I said, why not? Seems interesting enough. Uh, And that sort of started me on the path. Pretty quickly, my work shifted from like sort of the restoration side on, you know, restoring damaged ecosystems. I started thinking a lot about development and improving sort of 
social and environmental outcomes in emerging markets. I spent a long time working in, in Latin America, East Africa, South Asia, primarily focusing on improving access to electricity, clean electricity for rural communities. I ended up at Facebook where I built a pretty decent investing initiative out of the infrastructure team focused on driving energy access, primarily in Sub-Saharan Africa, but also South Asia, Southeast Asia. You know, that experience, I think, really shaped my thinking on the levers that I could like influence and address in the space. And it got me really thinking about capital as a as a powerful tool for change. And so about a year ago, I got the opportunity to start my own company with some early support from a venture studio a group called Enduring Ventures that I'd been working with doing other things. And, uh, you know, I started looking at the capital landscape in this space and realized that there's some pretty fundamental gaps that will, I think, prevent us from reaching the targets that we have set as a, as a people. And so, you know, there's, a, there's only so many tools you can use to affect the flows of capital. You can work in policy, which is not something that I enjoy doing. And so I didn't want to do that. You can start a fund or a fund like entity. And that often requires having a lot of personal wealth and spending a lot of time fundraising so that you can get to a volume where the management fees sort of pay the expenses of the business. Or you can start a startup that kind of looks like a fund. And there's been more and more sort of examples of those things being very successful. In our case, we said, okay, well, we want to solve the the credit gap in climate. And we can talk a little bit about that, the business credit gap. And we think that a fintech platform is really well positioned to do that. And fintech being financial tech. That's right. Financial technology. Yeah. Well, I guess beyond the the obvious, let's talk a little bit about why access to capital is so important for addressing the climate crisis, you know, kind of through the lens of climate solutions. So at the very highest level, a lot of really smart people have spent a lot of time trying to understand what it would cost for us as a society to sort of reach two degree C, right? So this like two degree Celsius target where, you know, the damage is not as bad. And that those numbers vary uh, anywhere from call it three to 10 trillion a year. Those are very big numbers compared to the amount of money that's flowing into the space today. So as of the last report by the Climate Policy Institute, which is one of the entities that tracks these flows, there was like 650, call it 700 billion a year invested in the space, which is about, you know, if you do the math, like one eighth of what we need to be doing. And that capital is broken down by categories. So there's lots of different ways capital moves into climate. There's spending by corporations to decarbonize, you know, Facebook investing in renewables or Apple cleaning up their supply chain or whatever. There's government spending on decarbonization for public infrastructure, there's project finance, so money flowing towards developers who are building large renewable projects or storage. Or, and then there's a category, which is called balance sheet finance. So basically corporate financing. This is what allows people to build companies around this ecosystem. So it might be venture capital, it might be growth equity, private equity, and debt. You know, companies need a lot of different forms of capital to grow and be successful. And if you look at the 
sliver that's debt today. It's pretty small. It's also one eighth of what it needs to be. And the thing is, if you look at the kind of debt that flows into the market today, it's it's generally very late stage corporate debt. And so it's like companies that are profitable, they're just like raising debt to pursue growth opportunities. But if you look at the sort of earlier stage landscape, there is nothing. And to top it off, the sort of traditional lenders have a harder time investing in climate because in a lot of ways, the business models, the time horizons, the sort of regulatory systems, like all these factors that are, in, for a lot of folks, seem complex. To me, they seem really simple because I've been in the space for a long time. But to other folks, they seem really complex. And so they're like, why are we going to bother taking risk here when we can just lend to you know, Joe Schmo with his $50 million a year pool cleaning business, right? And so while there are a handful of players that do actively lend in the space, there are banks, you know, for example, that do lending. But the problem with banks is they, you know, they need to see profitability, they need to see collateral, they need to see personal guarantees. They have all of these restrictions and they're slow and they're conservative. And when the world's on fire, you can't be slow. You have to really take a different perspective on risk in order to effectively deploy capital while still, I think, meeting sort of fiduciary return responsibilities that folks often have as managers of money. And when we're talking debt, I'm thinking about this in a really like simplistic way, but but keep me honest, I'm a, an entrepreneur that has a, let's say, some sort of solution that is going to help pull carbon out of the air, for instance. And you know, the different types of money flowing in, you're saying debt is not where it needs to be. And debt being, hey, I need a I need a loan to go invest in some equipment that I'm gonna need to to scale up a solution. Is that is that on par? Yeah. I mean it can take really any form, right? So capital takes two all capital really breaks into kind of two buckets. Well maybe three. There's free money, so grants. And then there's equity and there's debt. Equity gets paid back when the business is sold or acquired or listed or whatever. There needs to be an exit event. And debt is paid back over time from the cash flow of the business. Yeah. And you, you know, I think another one of my questions, and you've you've spoken to this a little bit already, but taking, you know, kind of the example of the climate entrepreneur again, I've got this carbon removal technology that I want to prove out and scale up. You know, what are kind of the primary financial barriers for those those companies. It sounds like banks are risk averse, and so they're you know they're not set up well to to deal with you know climate entrepreneurs. And and what are those entrepreneurs having to do right now to be able to you know to be able to get by? I mean, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of barriers. If we want to get to that 700 billion a year number, a lot of things need to change. One is I think people need to get a better understanding of sort of business performance in this space and risk uh, and how some of the macro factors that exist in the world will drive those risks moving forward. So, you know, historically, there's been a lot of concern about the impact of regulations or lack thereof on the success of climate businesses. And I think the space has shown in the last call it five years that it's sort of resilient to those factors. Like even during the Trump administration, climate tech was growing at an astronomic pace. But, you know, it's driven by the fact that sort of people are waking up to this problem. And so demand for solutions is, is growing consistently and 
at a pretty incredible pace. I think there needs to be, I think we need to see more instruments that are specifically tailored for this industry, right? So ways for you to borrow against future carbon removal credits that you will sell to, you know, Amazon. Ways to borrow against tax incentives that exists in the federal system. Like there's so much out there. I mean, we also, we need more equity. We need more project finance. There's, there's so many connections between these different types of capital and how they allow the people who are actually doing the work to be successful. And you can't really solve the full financing gap without having all of these pieces really grow and be successful. And so actually in our case, like we share deal flow with over 200 VCs. We share deal flow with a bunch of other lenders who do stuff that we don't do. And we work pretty hard to get founders in our community the capital that they need to be successful, even if it's not our capital. And we don't actually charge for any of that. We just do it because we think it's important. And in the long run, it's probably good for business because if we help folks raise money somewhere, they'll hopefully come back to us eventually when they need our kind of money. Gotcha. So it sounds like there's a whole ecosystem that really needs to be scaled up and And part of that ecosystem is accounting for sort of the uniqueness of, you know, climate solutions in their business model. The fact that my business model might be about selling carbon credits or, you know, my business model is predicated on, you know, some federal tax incentives that just passed, um, which might be different than kind of, you know, a lot of traditional stuff. And I would also say that there's a lot of businesses that have existed in call it climate for a long time that have never been well served by capital. So you have, for example, the residential solar market, right? If you look at it in the US, it is very easy for you as a consumer to get a loan for your solar system. Sure. But as the guy who's doing the installation, it's really hard for you to borrow money to grow your business. So if you're a solar installer and you wanna buy another truck and hire another installer so you can you know, increase your revenue by 30%, if you don't want to put your house up as collateral or your personal wealth as collateral, you're not going to get a loan because often these businesses don't have a lot of assets and they can't really put inventory up as collateral because the inventory is constantly moving. They're like putting it on people's roofs. And so you want to take out a loan, you know, yeah, you can get a, you can get a credit card, (laughs) Uh, but unless you're very profitable, very large, it's pretty hard to access credit. And the thing is the, you know, that's, it's, it's true for people who do, who like do energy efficiency audits. You run a business like that, good luck getting debt. Do LED lighting retrofits. Yeah. If you're like very large and profitable in a lot of cases, you still need a personal guarantee. Huh. Which, you know, you've rattled off three things that are, that are pretty essential when we're talking about making our homes more climate friendly. So as we're talking about all this, you know, you mentioned earlier the policy piece. Um, so we need to create this future ecosystem that enables us to, you know, do all the climate things that we need to do. Where, you know, where does government fit into all this? What, you know, what role do they need to play in in making this a more climate friendly, you know, finance environment? I think at the very highest sort of most abstract level, government needs to take risk, which is something that government I think generally struggles to do. There are really incredible examples though, where they've done this. So the DOE loan office, where they do sort of guarantees and low cost debt 
for climate. It's pretty powerful. Um, but I think government can do a lot more to unlock financing where they sort of play this catalytic role. And there's a ton of work that's been done on what catalytic capital can look like, right? You can do, you can offer capital that is willing to take the riskiest position and sort of get taken out if there is a default. You can offer a guarantee, which, you know, basically protects investors in the case that something goes south. You can, I mean, there's there's a ton of different instruments, right? And so I think historically, and I, this is definitely the case in emerging markets, it's also the case in, in sort of developed economies, is that often because government has a responsibility to taxpayers, it's agencies struggle with the idea of like losing money to unlock private money, you know? Right. Like, so maybe places in the past where you can think about, you know, certain administrations have invested in company XYZ and that company doesn't do well. And then all of a sudden, you know, gets blamed. Um, yeah. As a poor so investment. I, well, what's, what's interesting about that, that program, which was the predecessor to the DOE loan program that runs today if you actually look at it on a portfolio basis, that program was incredibly successful. You know, you're talking, I think you're talking about the Solyndra loan. Like it's like sort of yes. the most famous transaction. That was one loan out of many that they did. And if you look at the whole pie, they performed incredibly well. And so, but the thing is like financial performance shouldn't be the target because right. your goal with this type of capital is not your own financial performance. It's the overall amount of money flowing into the space and doing work. And so in places where there's a blocker, in places where the sort of demands of the market aren't being met because there's a, either a misperception of risk, or maybe the market is actually riskier today than it will be in the future, but the sort of opportunity cost of not investing is way greater. This is where you know governments, private philanthropic wealth can play an incredible role in unlocking investment. So I'm hearing, you know, government, at least in the US, you know, the Department of Energy has a program. It sounds like having government be willing to take risk and, you know, with the recognition, and it sounds like maybe there's some education around this for for taxpayers that this is about ensuring that, you know, you're kind of lifting all boats, it sounds like, rather than you know, the government's going to make good money on this, right? This is the government's going to help ensure that we have the climate solutions that we need. And the government does have an incredible array of programs that support early stage commercialization and uh, research and development. So there's like close to $50 billion a year from state and federal sources flowing into the space, right? It's not enough, but it's it's a hefty chunk of change. But there's a difference between sort of driving R&D and commercialization for the businesses. And it's something else to unlock capital that can then help them grow. And so if the market isn't catching up to where the space is, you're going to have all of this demand for money that's just not being met. Gotcha. Thus, the the importance of the catalytic capital you're talking about. That's right. I guess I'm wondering too, where do the major financial institutions fit in to all this? I mean, what role do you Maybe not what role they're playing, because it sounds like they're not necessarily playing the role that they should be. But um, you know, where do the big, the big banks fit in? What role you know should they be playing that they're maybe not playing today? Oh man, putting more money to work in this space. Period. Uh, yeah. And probably if they have a limited pool of money, diverting it from destroying the planet towards 
not, you know, there's, it's always words, fun. Divesting, divesting from fossil fuel, you know, investments and moving those into investing in climate investments. Yeah. I mean, I look in the end, no amount of calling for sort of climate responsibility by financial institutions is going to solve the problem. Like you, you look at BlackRock, their CEO, I don't know how many times has said that financial institutions need to take climate seriously, but like BlackRock bank bankrolls, oil and gas still. Sure. And so I think we as shareholders, stakeholders need to hold financial institutions to account. And if we truly care about these outcomes, we need to move our assets as individuals, as companies, as governments, as pension funds, like people need to start saying, hey, it is not okay for money to flow towards the destruction of this planet. And it is imperative for money to flow to the solutions to the destruction of this planet. And if we collectively do that, I think things will change. If governments create more opportunities to sort of protect investors in places where there's greater perceived risk, money will shift. Like there's a lot of levers that I think will change behavior. But in the end, uh, I struggle to believe that when presented with two choices, one that is sort of new and feels kind of lefty and has a lot of political stuff around it, and another which is, call it vanilla and not impact defined and maybe less risky in the moment, like capitalists will always choose the right side. I guess like having all of their assets evaporate overnight because the world's on fire doesn't seem like a big enough risk for people. <laughs> so I, I think you've kind of hinted at this uh, already, but you know, on all these topics of climate solutions, we're always trying to get to the question of what can we as individuals do knowing that we all have a role to play. So, you know, when we're talking about you know, getting money to the entities that need it, um, ensuring, you know, they can scale up and bring the solutions that we need to, to deal with climate change. What, you know, what can we do as individuals? Oh, man, I would bucket the sort of opportunities and individuals into call it three categories, right? There's what you say, what you do and where you put your money. You can speak up and implore others to take action, whether it's your friends, whether it's your employer, whether it's whatever institutions you can influence, if you're not talking to them about the fact that the planet's on fire, you probably should. Number two is what you do. So if you have the opportunity to work in climate and you don't today, you should. Not everybody can change jobs. Not everybody has the privilege to be able to do that. But if you do, you should. And it's not a question of like taking a pay cut. There's no pay cut. Every job that you can do anywhere, you can do in climate and you contribute to the world being less on fire. And then the third thing is like where you put your money. And so where you bank and where you keep your retirement funds actually plays a pretty meaningful role in climate. And so you could choose to put your personal assets in institutions that aren't actively harming the planet. And so I think if you are aware of the problem, and you're passionate about not being a bystander as sort of society collapses around you, then go talk about it, go do something about it and go put your money where your mouth is. I like it. I like the three buckets. And yeah, we've, we've talked about each of those in different respects, but it is a good way to look at our lifestyle. And, and if this is something that we're committed to, you know, we should be trying to, you know, make inroads in, in all those categories. 
Well, thank you for coming on, Dimitri, and taking the time to explain, you know, the complex world of finance and and helping our helping us reach our climate goals. Certainly not a simple one, but I feel a little bit smarter than, than when we started, and maybe that's dangerous. Um, <laughs> but but thanks for coming on and yeah, and talking about the the world of climate and money. Thanks for having me. This was great. I really enjoyed it. So Thomas, I know uh, the climate finance side of things is pretty complex, but I think Dimitri did a nice job of explaining things. What uh, what were your takeaways? Yeah, I, look, I'll, I'll be frank, Jason. I'm so focused on the technical side of things that I've probably not paid as much attention to the finance side of the renewable industry as I, I should have. But I think it's it's an extremely important factor because without it, if we can't raise the capital required to grow this side of it, we're never going to fix this problem. And unfortunately, money becomes a, a necessary evil um, in, in the fight against climate change. I think he did an amazing job of breaking it out and demonstrating both the complexities, but at the same time, making it relatable uh, to people. But there was one item that I, I thought should be mentioned and that and that's sort of a, a fourth leg to his sort of three basic methods of financing. And that is these industry-based programs like we have here in Australia with a small technology certificate program where there's a small levy when you buy electricity that goes into a big pot of money. Then you get to draw down on that when you purchase a renewable energy asset, be it solar panels or a hot water heat pump. In other words, like we have here in the US where little bit of your utility bill that you pay for your energy is is compiled and then that's helping helping subsidize you know basically all of us either becoming more energy efficient or you know moving away from from fossil fuels yeah like basically like a, a savings account essentially that can only be spent on that one item or that uh, one sector of society energy efficiency or renewable energy generation so I just think that those direct mechanisms are fantastic because pe- people just don't see that money just getting sucked into a great big black void of consolidated revenue and then just getting doled out at, at a whim just prior to election times. It's something that is a efficient mechanism of, of making the, the wheels of renewable energy and energy efficiency turn around. I mean, I like your analogy of a a savings account because in essence it's like people are accustomed to retirement accounts that are set aside for retirement. I mean, this is sort of the your your savings account for becoming green, right? The thing that uh was interesting to hear Dimitri talk about and, you know, seems obvious once you hear it, was that the way, say, kind of the finance industry is set up today, the models aren't really set up well to to address climate. You know, he talked at one point about this idea that like, hey, like the goal of these investments isn't to make money, it's to solve climate change. And, you know, there's a obviously a, a big value in avoiding these future costs that we, you know, we would see if climate change goes unabated. But that's very different than the normal investor who's saying, well, you know, I want to put this money into, you know, I want to invest into a company and I want to see a certain rate of return. In essence, these are investments that we need to be making so that we can all, you know, continue to have a livable planet, and that's that's clearly atypical for for the finance industry. Yeah, the interesting thing is that in in the past we would expect governments would 
would have stepped up to the plate to put the mechanisms in place to make those longer term investments for society a reality. But unfortunately, we've just seen a, a rapid shortening of the time horizon of political parties who can think about nothing but getting themselves reelected at the at the next you know, three, four year term rather than, well, where, where do we want to be in 50 or 100 years? And, and what are the steps that we can take now to make that as, as easier transition as possible? Yeah, it's true. I mean, that's been the challenge with climate change, right? Is that we're seeing the impacts clearly now, but we've known these things are coming and yet it takes you know, this acute pain to all of a sudden drive government action. Yeah. And I, I think a, another point along those lines where, again, it doesn't really fit into the um, debt, equity, or grant type financing mechanism is just planning decisions on the behalf of society and governments in general. And I, I take the example of um, high-speed rail where, or rail in general, where transporting goods via rail compared to truck will typically save about 75% of the emissions or energy. And, but, you know, it takes a a concerted effort to make something like, um, you know, high-speed rail links or rail links in general a success. But that, that's typically where you need that long-term visionary attitude from a government to, to make that work. You take Paris, for example, they've just rolled out a $4,000 per person grant for anybody that lives in a, a number of metropolitan centers where they'll pay you to hand over your car. We will give you $4,000 if you buy an electric bicycle instead. So there are some big infrastructure decisions that need to be made and we need to have the vision from governments to enable us to create the mechanisms behind the scenes so that this all works. I do think in you know, Dimitri talked about it. Government clearly has a really important role to play here. And, you know, he talked about the essentials of government being willing to take risk. And in addition to that, I think what we're talking about here is government having that long-term vision, right? To be able to, you know, pull all your your best minds together and say, okay, we need to move in this different direction. And so, you know, not only how do we incentivize and, and make it easier for our climate entrepreneurs but how do we incentivize the societal change that that needs to take place? And I, I think at a personal level, like we can all be part of that solution as well with how we decide where our money is invested. So when you look at where your 401k or in Australia, we call it a superannuation is invested, like is that being invested in companies that will be part of the future? Are they companies that are investing in renewable energy assets? Are they divesting from fossil fuel-based industries? Um, Because without putting the money where it needs to be to make this a reality, the whole system will end up stalling and we won't get that uh, transition to a zero carbon future as quickly as possible. Yeah, I mean, I think you you basically made the case for this week's uh, call to action. I read this great report put together by uh, the Sierra Club and a couple other entities called Banking on Climate Chaos, where they do this detailed analysis and show all these major banks, these major names where many of us have you know money sitting and checking or savings, and the hundreds of millions of dollars that they are lending to the fossil fuel industry, that they are using to enable us to extract more, to pollute more. And 
And the only way to stop that is if consumers take their money elsewhere, right? I mean, it's it's the most fundamental way to make change. And we got to get away from the JP Morgan chases, the Citibanks, the Wells Fargo, the Bank of America, because they're terrible. And I'd encourage everybody to you know hop online and check out the website uh, bankforgood.org or Mighty. You can put in you know the criteria that's important to you in a financial institution, and they'll spit out banks that give you what you need, and and you can rest assured that your money isn't contributing to to climate change. If we all individually make that effort, it adds up. And you know, I guess I should call out because I know you know making financial decisions can be complex, can be easy to kind of get bogged down in all the information. There's tons of financial advisors out there now that specialize in this green energy economy. And I will be the first to say I have some lingering investments that I'm sure have fossil fuel money in them and uh, will commit on on this podcast to make those changes. And you know what? I'll, I'll let everybody know how it goes. So that's a wrap for this week. Thanks for tuning in. As a reminder, we will be off next week, but back September 20th. So don't go away. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimus.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimus Podcast. Mm-hmm.